and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Have you ever looked at a task that needed doing and said or thought that it was beneath you? Did you do it anyway? Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series One Another with this sermon entitled Serve One Another, which covers John chapter 13 verses 1 to 17. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Church. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of John, chapter 13, verses 1 to 17. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were here in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from the Father and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around his waist. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you who do them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lori. Let's read aloud together our prayer of illumination. Gracious God, reveal your holy, eternal word to us and introduce us to the knowledge of your will. Where we have erred, correct us. Where we are wounded, heal us. Where we are needy, fill us. Good shepherd, lead. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. Well, last week we began a a new series, a short series that's only going to be three weeks, so we're right here in the middle of it. Last week we started uh, the series off that we're calling One Another, with love one another, and this week we're going to focus in on serve one another. Now, let me just go ahead and tell you, there's a resource that I'm recommending with this series that we have available within our bookstore. You can pick one up there if you want to order it online, but it's called 31 Ways to Be a One Another Christian by Dr. Stuart Scott. Now, 31, that means that there's a lot of 
one another's in Scripture, and we're only hitting just, just a few, obviously. But if you want to take a deeper dive into this subject and, and really begin to think through and process through what does it look like to be one who lives out the various instructions of one another in the Word of God, then that would be a great resource to do so. As I mentioned last week, we started with love one another, and it was, I heard from many of you, it was both good and convicting, because we realize when, uh, when facing a subject like that, and the Lord's very clear teaching on it, that we realize how much we can grow in it, and how much we need the Holy Spirit to empower us to love one another. This week, as we think about serving one another, we're going to see later on, hopefully, how those connect and live together. But I want to ask you a question. What are, what are moments in your life, experiences in your life, instances that have stood the test of time for you as being one of the most impactful things in your life? Immediately when I ask you that question, there's something that comes to mind for many of us. Uh, if we're married, perhaps it would be the our marriage itself, our wedding day, or the birth of our kids. Uh, perhaps it's some adversity that we've come through in life, and there's a particular moment in time that really stands out to you with that. But for some of us, possibly, what came to mind was a moment, an instant, an experience where someone very unexpectedly and very extraordinarily served you. They, they, in some act of service, moved towards you and did something that blew you away, knocked you off your feet, as it were. It was just incredible. And one of those instances happened to me that still stands out to this day. I was, I was in college. I had just spent 10 weeks on summer project with crew in Panama City Beach, Florida, the Redneck Riviera. We all love it. I don't know if it's that anymore. It was back then. That's what they called it back then. Rachel and I were dating at the time, and she had spent 10 weeks on the other side of the country in San Diego with crew on Summer Project. And so we had been away from each other for, uh, for 10 weeks, and uh, I had gone home first to my town that I grew up in, where my parents were still living at the time in North Alabama, and I visited with them a little bit, but I was so eager to get here to Atlanta to see her. So I'm driving down Highway or Interstate 65 south towards Birmingham, and a little bit of a side note here, I, I wasn't then, nor have I improved all that much since then in being really attuned to my car, taking care of my car, right? Uh, a sad but true story is that it was about two years into owning a car or having a car that I realized, oh, you're supposed to change the oil in this. I'm, I, true, yeah, embarrassing but true. It was not good for the engine of my car, but I had had a a tire that kept leaking air, the back right tire. And uh, instead of dealing with it as a responsible human would do and so forth, I just kept putting air in it. Well, as I'm driving down Interstate 65, it had finally had its last, and it blew. Rubbers going everywhere, flying everywhere, hitting my window, the back of my car, and I'm trying to get control of the car and wrestle it over to the median and uh, I mean, I'm sure, I mean, 20 years old, so responsible. I'm sure I was going the speed limit when all this happened. But I'm, I'm getting it over, and thankfully, I'm able to do that without any, uh, without wrecking or any danger to myself. And as I'm off to the side of the road now, cars are just whizzing by, and it's a little bit scary, and I'm getting out of the car. And right about the time that I get out of the car, there's a van that pulls up right behind me, and not a minivan, a big van, 
full-sized. And six to seven maybe guys, seemingly about my age, come out. And I'm thinking, this is not going to be good. (laughs) What is about to happen? Well, what happened was not that they were about to kidnap me or beat me up or anything like that. They changed my tire. And they wouldn't let me do anything. I kept asking, guys, please let me, you know, let me do something. No, no, no. You just hang out. We got this. And they were so secretive about it. I kept asking them questions. Who are you? Where are you from? All All I got out of them was that they were from Kentucky. Great. Want to give me a town name? What's going, you know, they, they, nothing. And, and where are you headed? Well, we're headed to Florida. Awesome. I, but that's all. They just didn't say much. They were very friendly. They smiled. They changed my tire. They got back in their van. They pulled off. And I, and I just thought, even in the moment, it's like, man, did, did I just entertain angels, as Hebrews talks about? Like, what just happened? And even to this day, I think back on that often and think, man, that was That was really unexpected and very extraordinary that that would happen. And the reason that stands out to me and the reason that you may have something similar that stands out to you is because it's just not normal, is it? It's not normal to see or be the recipient of acts of service like that, to be served by others in a way that totally... uh, inconveniences them, but puts your needs ahead of theirs. You know, I, maybe they were on a schedule. Maybe they were trying to get somewhere, but they said, you know what, we'll get there when we get there. Let's help this guy. You know, we are, we talk about this often, we are by nature, by the sin nature that we were born into, we are by nature a very selfish people. And so that's why things like this really stand out to us, because it's just not normal. But what if it, what if it were the norm? What if, it, what if these type occurrences were happening so much through the people of God filled by the Holy Spirit that they're loving and serving others in such a way to where even the enemies of the church, even those who would say, I don't believe what they believe, but I'll tell you what, those people serve people like crazy. I can't argue with the way they love people and the way that they serve people. I just, it just is what it is. What if it were through God's church, the norm. If love, as we talked about last week, if love is the primary ethic and witness of the church, then right there with it is service. If love is the primary ethic and witness of the church, then service is the primary attitude and posture of the church. Now let's look at this passage that we just had read for us to dive into what Jesus displays for us in connecting these two together and showing us what this can look like, both literally in the physical sense and spiritually. And I wish I had time. I I don't. Time time doesn't permit in this sermon to dive into the first three verses. There's a lot there. There's a lot that I would love to say about the first three verses of John 13. But I'm going to jump to verse 4 to really dive in first with this act of service that Jesus did for his disciples. And let's set the scene just a little bit here. The scene is that it's Thursday night before Jesus is crucified on Friday. It's the Passover meal. Jesus and his disciples are celebrating and eating this meal together. And this is the meal, this is the moment 
When Jesus is going to take a centuries-old, generation after generation after generation, old tradition in the Jewish faith called Passover and help the disciples then and help us even now see and understand that it was always pointing to him. That the Passover lamb that was celebrated through the deliverance of Israel into Egypt or out of Egypt was really that lamb that was put over the doorpost of the, of the houses was to signify a greater lamb, a lamb to come. That there would be another greater lamb who would shed his blood once and for all, and it wouldn't be shed and placed over the doorpost of our houses, but it would be placed over the doorpost of our hearts, as it were. That it would be this, this reality, this once and for all sacrifice. And Jesus, that very night, is turning the table. He's, he's helping us see that this has always been about him the true and greater Passover lamb. Now that's the context, and it didn't look like this. A little pixelated there, but you know what it is. Da Vinci's famous painting of the Last Supper. That's not, that's not how it looked. The picture that I want you to have in your mind is more like this. It's more of what is truly meant in the biblical times of reclining at table. A reclining at table was this right here. It was these men would have been gathered around the table. Almost all of them, certainly, the tradition was that you would lean on your left elbow. That your feet would be out away from the table. Your right hand would be free to pick the food up from the table. And everyone was in around, in, in the case of this upper room situation, it was most likely a U-shaped table like this. They would have been seated according to uh, the best way that we could say it, even though this isn't the most accurate way to say it, but according to rank. It's not that Jesus ranked the disciples, but he, he did have Peter, James, and John that he was closest to and so on and so forth from there. So it makes sense now that if we were to keep reading in John chapter 13, soon after this passage is the next part of the story where it says that John leans back into the bosom of Jesus. Well, now that makes sense, right? Because that means that he was just to the right of Jesus. He was Jesus' best friend, so they're there together. And Peter, across the way, had motioned to John, hey, ask him who it is that's going to betray us. Because Jesus had been saying to them, there's one here tonight that's going to betray me. And so Peter's like, you know, the one, Peter's the one that always has to know and talk and whatnot. So he's like, hey, who is it? And so John leans back, hey, who is it? Who's going to betray us, betray you? Now we get the picture of what that, it's not like they were sitting around a table in lazy boy chairs reclining at a table. That's not, you know, that's not the picture. So this is, this is the scene, but the feet, the feet are out away from the table, and there was a reason for that. It's because in that day and time, the feet were considered the dirtiest place of the human body. The dirtiest part of the human body. Why? Well, they walked around in open shoes and sandal type shoes. No paved streets. There's dirt and sand, and you can imagine what else was constantly getting on their feet as they made their way from house to house, from business to business, from place to place. And so it was customary. It was, it was expected that whenever you entered into someone's home or any establishment of that matter, especially if a meal was going to be eaten, but even if it were just to come and visit, that there would be a servant ready to wash your feet. So it's at this point in the story where I want to pick up in verse 4. 
In your Bibles, you'll notice that verse 4 starts at the very end of the previous sentence from verse 3. And it just says this. Rose from supper. Jesus rose from supper. Now, I'm pausing already because what's he rising to do? Well, he's rising to, to do this act of service that's going, going to astonish his disciples. But even before we continue with the story in John, let's, let's get a little bit more insight into the context from Luke's account of this very night. And when we put those two together, I think we'll get a little bit better picture of what's going on here. So if you go to Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 24, on this Passover night, Luke is giving his account, and he gives us a little bit of, a, of, a, of something that John doesn't. Listen to what he says. He says, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Now, let me just pause there and, and remind us of where the disciples are right now in their understanding of the kingdom of God. It says a dispute arose among them of who among them was going to be the greatest. This is not the first time that they've had this argument, by the way. We know of at least three times that they've had this argument, where they're arguing among them which one of them is going to be the greatest. Now, here's, here's what's interesting about this. This is the night before Jesus is going to be crucified on Friday. They've been with him for three years, and they're still not getting it. They're still not getting the nature of God's kingdom. They're still not understanding what he came for why he came. They are still thinking, even on this night, this Passover Thursday night, they are still thinking that what Jesus is ultimately going to do, even though he's told them that he must be, uh, that he must be crucified and raised again on the third day, they still think that what he's going to do is go into Jerusalem first and then ultimately into Rome and take over. That what he's come to usher in is, as the kingdom of God is hearkening back to what, what Israel had with David and with Solomon. The height of the Israel rule over, over all the land. The greatest kingdom in all the earth. In other words, they were still expecting that what Jesus was up to was ultimately a political and government and military takeover. And so their debate is when he does that, Who's going to get to sit next to him on the throne? Who's he going to invite to his dinner table the most? And they're arguing about it. The word there seems, I mean, it, it means that. They're arguing. It's not like it, jesting, you know, I'm going to be there. No, it's like, no, no, uh, I'm, I'm taking offense to the fact that you think you're going to be closest and not me. They're arguing about it. But... There's, a, there's even a context to that that I think we can glean from, and, and, and here it is. In verse 26, it says, But not so with you, rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. Now, that's a beautiful saying in and of itself in terms of Jesus continuing to press in the nature of his kingdom. The first shall be last, the last shall be first, so on and so forth. But I think that's a window, a little hint into the context of what, what's actually generating the argument, which is to say this. When they walked into the upper room that night, 
there was clearly, according to John's account, there was a basin there, there was a pitcher there, there was water, there was a towel there. In other words, it was set, ready for feet to be washed. The problem was there was no servant. There was no servant present. So what should have happened is that one of the disciples would have said, well, I'll do that. But apparently none of them did. Well, here's part of the reason for that. It was a menial task. It was a task that was reserved for the lowest of servants. And there was a bit of even a hierarchy among servanthood, bond servanthood. And and even the lowest of servants were the ones that would do this task. And not not even uh, uh, Jewish servants. Only Gentile servants were the ones who would wash feet. And even then, the lowest of Gentile servants. So you can imagine, therefore, now we're in a situation where none of these disciples are willing to say, okay, I'll stand up and do it, even though it's the elephant in the room. No one has washed the feet of the disciples. They're eating and their feet are still dirty, which is not a good thing in that culture. And so Jesus says, listen to the words again there in Luke. He says, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. Probably, most likely, what was happening is that they were saying, well, whoever is the youngest among them, let's say it's Bartholomew. Bartholomew, hey, you're the youngest, you do it. He's going, I'm not doing that. I mean, I love you, bro, but I'm not touching your feet. You know, that kind of thing, right? And they were arguing, and then it led into, this is just me speculating here, but I think there's something to the greater context. Then it most likely led into that argument of who's going to be the greatest among us. The foot washing thing, man, none of us are doing that. Why? Because Jesus is about to take over. Who's going to be nearest to him? Watch what Jesus does. By the way, the argument is who's going to be the greatest among the 12 disciples? They know that Jesus is the greatest among them. That's not debated. So Jesus, verse 27, for who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? He's speaking about the culture. He's saying the world would say it's the one reclining at table. But in my kingdom, he says, but I am among you as the one who serves. And it's my opinion that it's at this point right here, when you combine Luke and John's accounts, that he rose from supper. Where John chapter 4 picks up, or chapter 13 verse 4 picks up. It's in that context that he stands up and he says, none of you are willing to do this. I'll do it. What he does next is astonishing. In John chapter 13, as verse 4 continues, it says he does this. It says, he laid aside his outer garments And taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I don't know if you caught it or not. Something really, really, really powerful just happened. Jesus didn't arise from supper and just perform the act of a servant. He took the form of a servant. It says that he arose from supper and he took off his outer garments, 
which would have meant this, would have meant that he took off the outer flowing garment that would have gone all the way to the ground and the tunic underneath to where all he would have been wearing at this point was a loincloth. What is that? That is the exact attire of a lowly Gentile servant. He wanted to show them that in my kingdom, this is how greatness is measured. Because the disciples are still not getting it. They're still not understanding that greatness in the kingdom of God is, is measured by the yardstick of service. And they are undoubtedly speechless. They don't know what to say. There were probably some gasps in the room. Maybe a couple of whispers. What is he doing? As he starts with whoever he goes to first. And he begins to wash the grimy, dirty, nasty feet. And then to the next. And then to the next. And then to the next. And no one is saying a thing. Until he gets to Peter. <laughs> Good old Peter. Peter is shocked as well, but, you know, Peter has to say something. And he looks at Jesus and he says, do you wash my feet? And Jesus says to him, Peter, you don't understand what I'm doing, but one day soon you will. And Peter responds in the original language with a double negative, an emphatic, no. You will not wash my feet. And Jesus presses in deeper and says, Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, then you have no share with me. See, the, the problem was Peter was only seeing things in the physical, literal sense. He was only seeing in part, not the whole. And he wasn't picking up, nor were any of the other disciples likely picking up, that what Jesus was doing here, yes, physically meant something. It was unbelievable that the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, would wash literally the feet of sinners. But they weren't grasping at that point. They would, as Jesus promised, but they weren't grasping at that point that what Jesus was doing is he was, in essence, showing them, this is why I came. Yes, I'm washing your feet right now, but I came to wash you. I came to wash your hearts in a spiritual sense. I came to cleanse the dirtiest places of who you are. The, the issues and situations and occurrences of sin, both in motive and in action and in deed and in thought and all of it. The worst of sins that you think can never be cleansed, I came to cleanse those. But this cleansing, Jesus is showing, he's He's displaying that this cleansing can only happen not through the washing of water, but the washing of my blood shed for you. Not just to cover and cleanse your dirty feet, but to cover and cleanse your dirty heart. Of course, Peter's not getting that in the moment. And so what does Peter do? Peter does what he did often. He jumps to the other extreme. And he says, okay, well, if you're going to insist on doing it, then wash my hands and my head as well. And this is classic Peter, right? One minute he was walking on the water full of faith, next minute he's drowning in fear. 
One moment he's declaring, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And literally minutes later, he's rebuking Jesus. This is Peter who is declaring to Jesus, I will never deny you. I will die for you. And just a couple hours later, he's denied him three times. We are Peter. We do the same thing. We see our, our hearts flip-flopping just like his, and we, we don't often understand what Jesus is up to and the nature of his kingdom. And so, after finishing washing the disciples' feet, he asked them a very, very, very important question. It's very important for them then, but just as important for us today. Verse 12, he says to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Do you understand what I have done to you? And of course the answer, if they answered him was, no, not really. Let me explain to you here just two things. There are many things, but in this extraordinary act of service, Jesus accomplished two things primarily. First, he symbolized for us his humiliation for our cleansing, for our spiritual cleansing. He is, in essence, as I just explained a moment ago, he is demonstrating to them, for them, in this one act, the heartbeat of why he came. Mark 10 45 says it this way, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We often talk in theological circles, we talk about the humiliation of Christ. And really his whole life could be described as the humiliation of Christ. But as we get into Passion Week, the week that he died and was buried and rose again, we we see throughout his ministry of those three years, but then even most poignantly right here, we see Jesus willing to be humiliated so that others can be lifted up. Here's, here's what Jesus willingly did, is he, he laid down his rights. He laid down his freedoms. He laid down his reputation so that others may be lifted up. He did exactly what Paul commands us to do, which is to consider others as more important than yourself. Consider their needs as more important than your own. Jesus lived this out so very perfectly. And in this instant, yes, again, he's washing feet physically and that's powerful, but he's giving them a picture of the nature of his kingdom and it's that of service. It's that of service. I can't, I can't stress this enough. What Jesus is displaying in the washing of the feet, I've said it a, a couple of times, I'll say it again, is he's saying, look, in the same way that I am washing your feet right now, I want to cleanse your heart. There is not one sin, not one, regardless of how unclean you think it is, even if you think it's, I've done the worst thing imaginable, there is not one thing that the blood of Jesus cannot cleanse. Not one. 
And we, like Peter, will often say back to Jesus, oh, but would you watch that? There's no way you can watch. You can't watch that. It's just too bad, and you are just too great. And Jesus says, that's why I came. I came to cleanse you, every part of you. Don't hide anything from me. Let me do it. It's who I am. I came to humble myself. Philippians 2, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather he humbled himself and what? Took on the form of a servant. He literally does that here to display this is who I am. I came to serve sinners. But secondly, he gave us an example to emulate. He says this in verse 14. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now, he's not... He's not enacting another sacrament or ordinance of the church, although if you want to physically wash feet of another, certainly can do so. It's powerful to do so. I've had that done to me and done it to others, and it's a beautiful picture. But what he's saying here is he's saying, just as I have shown you what the nature of my kingdom is, that it's to serve others, go and do the same. Humble yourselves. Lay down your rights. Give up your pride. Lay down your reputation. Lay down your freedoms so that the others may be lifted up. That's service. And do it as I have done to you. But you know another thing he's doing? You know, last week we talked about love. We got to that part in the sermon that just became really uncomfortable for all of us, myself included, where He defines for us what this looks like, and and we see there on the Sermon on the Mount that he says, love your enemies, and you went, oh, this is a whole new level, right? But he's connecting dots between love and service. He's showing that if you love like me, you will serve like me, and that means that not only are you loving your enemies, you're serving even your enemies. Because whose feet did he wash that night? Did he leave anyone out of the twelve? He washed every foot, including who? Judas. We already know from the text that he knows exactly what Judas is going to do. The very one among them who would just in a few minutes betray Jesus for a mere few pieces of silver. Jesus washes his feet too. To love like Jesus is to serve like Jesus. And loving like Jesus and serving like Jesus, neither one of them come with stipulations or conditions. The only way we can do that is through the power of the Holy Spirit. One last thing I want to draw your attention to. In John chapter 10, there's some beautiful language that mirrors the language of our text in John 13. Verse 17, it says this, Jesus is teaching and he says, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. That that verb 
in the Greek, I lay it down. I lay my life down. That verb, that core verb is the same verb of when he stood and rose from the table and he laid aside, same word, laid aside his garments. In other words, what Jesus is showing the disciples in us on that Thursday night is he's saying, I'm not just the one who lays aside garments to cleanse feet. I'm the one who willingly lays aside my life to cleanse hearts. So will you trust him? This servant King Jesus who came to give his life as a ransom for many, not to be served, but to serve. Will you trust him? Because he can be trusted with everything. Not only will you trust him, but if you have trusted him, will you love and serve like him? Will you lay down your rights? Will you lay aside your pride? Will you lay down your reputation and your freedom? By the Holy Spirit, because it must be through the power of the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit, may we do that, church. May we do it well, and may it become our norm to the glory of God. Oh, God, would you help us serve one another? as you have served us. We will certainly struggle and we will do that imperfectly, but Lord, we long to. We long to do it. We long to love and serve others like you. Lord, we, we admit to you that often we just get so very caught up in our needs. So would you help us look outside of ourselves to see the needs of others Oh, Lord, we pray that you would do a work in us that only you can do, igniting our hearts for you and living our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit for you, loving and serving those who you bring into our path. We thank you in advance. Would you be praised now as we worship you in song? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.